All right, to where um, we're looking specifically at the message of the good news, and we started that last week. And just to uh, review, the first point there is that basically the gospel, the gospel message includes four ingredients. And the first one is that the gospel message is a message about God. That's the first and primary uh, point that, that needs to be stressed in sharing the gospel. It's about who God is and His character and His standards and uh, the fact that we, he, we are creatures and He is the Creator. We owe our very being and life to God. And, and therefore, we're totally dependent on God. Uh, for everything. In Him we live and move and have our being. Paul, uh, quoting a Greek philosopher, uh, said in Acts 17. So, that's where the gospel has to start. And really, it doesn't do any good to talk about sin and salvation until we've established the point of who God is and and, uh, our dependence upon Him. So we're starting today, and the handout I just uh, handed out there is uh, the second point, which is the gospel message is about sin. That's the second thing. The gospel message is about sin. It tells us that we've fallen short of God's standards and how we have become guilty and helpless in sin, and now we stand under the wrath of God. Uh, in Ephesians 2, Paul says we are by nature children of wrath. We are under God's wrath and, and uh, the reason that we sin continually is because we have a sin nature. We're born with that sin nature as a result of the sin of Adam. And so uh, that nothing we try to do on our own can make us right with God uh, because of our nature. It's, it actually, when we talk about sin, it really shows us uh, ourselves as God sees us. And that's, that's a very important point because we, we often look at ourselves in relationship to other people or whatever, but not in relationship to God. And this causes us to look at ourselves and see ourselves as God sees us and to think about ourselves as God thinks about us in that relationship. Uh, and, and that should lead us to despair, <laughs> really. Which is a necessary step to the fact that here we are, we're under God's wrath, we stand under God's wrath because of sin, and we're unable to do anything about it on our own. We're helpless before God, and we stand under His wrath. And that should, as I said, should bring us to despair. So we know that we have a need to get right with God, but we don't have the ability to do that on our own. Now, there's a pitfall here when you're in in sharing the gospel. Because, you know, everybody's life includes some dissatisfaction with themselves and and their own lives. You know how we, 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 we feel like we failed ourselves. We haven't lived up to our own standards. You know, not talking about God at all, but just our own standards. Uh, we feel like we've messed up. We've, uh... The danger is that in, in evangelism we would be content with making people feel like, feel uncomfortable about those things 
and depicting Christ as the one who saves them from that dissatisfaction, that feeling of failure, and, and all of that. Uh, apart from any relationship to God, you see. It's like we all feel like, we, well, I, I, I shouldn't have done that or this or whatever. I lived up, haven't, I haven't even lived up to my own standards. And, we, and, we, and if we pick the gospel as, as God is satisfying that need, when we're not talking about sin in relationship to God, which is, where, which is primary, it's about God and our relationship with Him. So, uh, unless we see our shortcomings in light of the law of God and His holiness, we're missing the point here in terms of uh, it being sin. Sin has to do with something against God. The relationship with God. Sin is not a social concept. It's a theological concept. It deals with God. So, sins committed by man, you know, there are many sins committed against man and against society. Um, you know, the biggest, the biggest, quote, social sin in our society today is social injustice. Well, it is, you know, it's not good. Social injustice is not good. It is, it's against society. But, Sin cannot be defined in terms of man or in terms of society. It's in terms of our relationship with God. That's the primary thing. The other things are are relative to that. Uh, So, what we have to grasp is that a bad conscience, the bad conscience of the natural man, that is the man without a relationship with Christ, the natural man, the bad conscience is not at all the same thing as conviction of sin. Just because a person feels bad about something they've done doesn't mean there's conviction of sin. It might be just that they feel bad about their own failures to their own standards, apart from God. It doesn't follow that a person is convicted of sin when they're distressed about the weaknesses or wrong things that they've done. It's not conviction of sin just to feel miserable about ourselves, you know, or or inadequacies to meet life's demands, nor is it saving faith in if a man in that condition called on the Lord Jesus Christ to soothe him and cheer him up and make him feel confident again. That's, that's, not, uh, that's not saving faith. Nor would it be proclaiming the gospel if all we did was to present Christ in terms of a person's felt needs. You know, uh, are you unhappy... Uh, you, you, you feel dissatisfied with your life? Uh, you, you, you fed up with yourself? You feel like you failed? You need a friend? Well, come to Jesus, and he'll satisfy all your needs. That, that's not the gospel, you see. It's, it's sort of like it makes God like a fairy godmother or, or a, you know, the super psychiatrist or something. So to proclaim sin does not mean to capitalize on people's felt frailties. Which is the brainwasher's trick, you know, to focus on those things. But to measure their lives by the holy law of God. That's what we're breaking. We're breaking God's law here. So to be convicted of sin means to realize that one has offended God.
And to, uh, to proclaim Christ means to set forth Him as the one who, through the cross of Christ, sets us right with God. We're wrong with God, we've offended God's holy law, and seeing Jesus as the one who, through the cross, makes us right with God. To put faith in Christ means relying on Him and Him alone to restore that right relationship with God. Now, it's true that the real Christ, the Christ of the Bible, who offers Himself to us as a Savior from sin and an advocate with God, does in fact give us peace and uh, joy and moral strength and all of that. But that's a result of a restored relationship with God. Richard Niebuhr once made this quote. According to liberalism, you have a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. That's, that's liberalism. That's, uh, that's not what we're preaching. That's not the gospel. So what are the signs of true conviction of sin? As distinct from, you know, the mere hurt of a bad conscience or disgust with their life. Number one, conviction is essentially an awareness of a wrong relationship with God. A wrong relationship with God. It's, it's the vertical relationship here that's, that's the issue. The English word transgression we find a lot in both the Old Testament and New Testament. And transgression, the Hebrew word pesha literally means a going away or a departure. Or in the, in the case of uh, what we're talking about, primarily as rebellion. Rebellion against God and His authority. Now we don't often think of sin in that way. But that's how the Bible describes transgression, the term transgression. Rebellion against God. It's the real, realization that one is actually in a relationship with God that spells only rejection and judgment because we rebelled against Him. Retribution and wrath. That's the relationship we're in, uh, apart from Christ. For the present and the future. You know... Uh, someone, you know, I, I remember sharing the gospel with a person and, and they, they weren't ready to make a decision for Christ. And, and that's, that's fine if the person's not, not ready. But they need to know that they're already in a decision at the time, right? They're under the wrath of God. That's where they are. They can't decide, am I going to be under the wrath of God or am I going to be free from that wrath? No, you're already in one decision. <laughs> so recognize that, you know. It's a realization that the relationship is intolerable the way it is in the present situation and that needs to be changed uh, at whatever cost and on whatever terms. That's when you, when you have a sense of true conviction. A person senses their situation with God and know that change needs to happen. So conviction of sin may center upon one's guilt before God or uncleanness in his sight, or rebellion against him, but is always the sense of a need to get right with God. That's, that's conviction, when a person has a need to get right with God. 
Secondly, conviction of sin always includes conviction of sins, plural, sins. That is, a sense of guilt for particular wrongs that you've done, that you can name them, you know. Uh, wrongs that we've done in the sight of God, for which we need to turn to get rid of uh, if we're going to be right with God. So we see in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, when Isaiah is confronted with God, is sees God, and, and uh, the first thing he does is recognize that he, he is convicted specifically of sins of speech. I'm a man of unclean lips, he says. Zacchaeus, uh, the tax collector, when he, when he meets Jesus face to face, and, and uh, he, he's convicted of sins of extortion, you know, as a tax collector. So, conviction of sins, plural, particular sins that we can name. The Greek word is hamartia, which means falling, falling short of God's standard. And God's standard, of course, is the law. And uh, the target, it, it, it actually goes back to the idea of uh, a person shooting an arrow at a target and falling short of the target. The center of the target is perfection. And that's what God requires of all of us. Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So we, none of us stack up to that. And third, conviction of sin always includes the conviction of sinfulness, sinfulness. That is, a sense of our own complete corruption and perversity in God's sight. The biblical word is iniquity. Uh, it means to be corrupt. In fact, inside and twisted and crooked. In other words, it's, it's the sense that we need a new heart. That's, that's that conviction, we need a new heart, because the problem is inside. And people over the centuries have, have come to discover this. People, uh, even Martin Luther, you know, oh, if, I, if, I just, if I can just, uh, you know, do all these hard things, uh, I'll get, I'll, I can get rid of sin. So he would, he would go up these large number of steps uh, up to the church on his knees. You know, just making things as hard as he could for himself. Oftentimes the monks did this, so self-flatulation and all, all that to get rid of sin. And Martin Luther discovered that, you know, sin isn't out there, sin is in here. It's inside, you know. And that's, that's what we're talking about here. It's a recognition that we really need a new heart and a new birth, a moral recreation. Iniquity. So you have transgression, sin, and iniquity. Those three terms. The transgression really uh, is, a, is a seeing sin in terms of our relationship with God. We're rebels. Hamartia is seeing our sin in terms of God's law. We've fallen short. We're lawbreakers. And iniquity is seeing sin in terms of in terms of what it does to us, our relationship with ourselves. It corrupts us.
So, the gospel message is about sin. It's about God first, about sin second. And third, the gospel message is about Christ. The Son of God incarnate. The Lamb of God dying on the cross for sin. And rising from the dead as Lord. There are two points that need to be made about declaring this part of the message, the message about Christ. The first is, we must not present the person of Christ apart from his saving work. Some have suggested that all the evangelist needs to do is to paint a vivid word picture of the man of Galilee who went about doing good and then assure the hearers that this Jesus is still alive and can help them in their troubles. Well, that's not the gospel. Uh, the truth is that you can't make sense of the historic figure of Jesus till you know about the incarnation, that he was God who came down in flesh, that he was made man to save sinners according to his Father's eternal purpose. It's understanding those things about who Jesus is. Nor can we um, make sense of his life till we know about the atonement. That he lived as a man so that he might die as a man for men. And his life, of course, he, kept, he perfectly kept God's law. And therefore was able to be a substitute for us. Knowing about his passion, his, his murder under the Roman law. And his saving action in bearing sin, the world's sin. Nor can you tell on what terms to approach him until you know about the resurrection, the ascension, and his reigning in heaven today. As king. And lives even now to save to the uttermost those who acknowledge his lordship. These, these doctrines are essential to the gospel. So you can't present Christ apart from his saving work. You know, when, when, uh, in ordinary life, when uh, you're, you're introducing a person to somebody else, uh, you know, it's, it's typical to say, you know, this is so-and-so, and this is what he does, and this, you know, this is his, he's married to so-and-so. He works at this place, telling a background about the person. Well, that's what we're doing when we're introducing Jesus to, to people. You're telling about his life and what it meant, what he's done. Now, there's a complementary point in number two. We must not present the saving work of Christ apart from his person. That's the opposite problem. Uh, in other words, it, it's a concern to focus attention on the atoning death of Christ as a sole sufficient ground which sinners may be accepted by God or with God. One might summon a person to faith in terms like this. Believe, just believe that Jesus died for your sins. 
The effect of this gospel, this appeal, is to present the saving work of Christ in the past. Believe that Christ died for your sins. Disassociate it from his person in the present. You know, Christ is living. We serve a living Savior. And we're trusting in a living Savior. It's not biblical to isolate the work from the worker. Nowhere in the New Testament is the call to believe expressed in those terms. What the New Testament calls for is faith in or into or upon Christ Jesus. Placing our trust in the living Savior who died for us. The object, the object of saving faith is not strictly speaking the atonement, but the Lord Jesus Christ who made the atonement. That's who we have our trust in. We're not trusting in the action. We're trusting in the person who made the action there. And that continues to be the case as we live out our lives. You know, it's interesting how often when people share a testimony of coming to Christ, they go back to, yeah, I trusted Christ. I trusted, you know, that Christ died for my sins back at such and such a date, whenever that was, that they maybe uh, made a profession of faith or whatever. But the truth is, is well, where are you now? I mean, are you, is, it, is it an ongoing trust? Or are you just trusting an event back then, of a decision you made back then? Are you living that trust today, on a daily basis? So in presenting the gospel, we must, we must not isolate the cross and its benefits from the Christ whose cross it was. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Paul, Paul said to the Philippian jailer. Now what has to be said about the cross when, when proclaiming the gospel is simply that Christ's death is the ground on which Christ's forgiveness is given. And that all, that's all that has to be said. Christ's death on the cross is the ground of proclaiming the gospel. The question of the desi- designed extent of the atonement is not an issue that needs to come up at all. You know. Uh, so, for example, that the person says, believe that Christ died for your sins. Well, you know, in fact, we don't know that. <laughs> exactly. We know that Christ died for sins. The fact is, the New Testament never calls on any person to repent on the, crowd, on, the, on the ground that Christ died specifically and particularly for him. It, you don't see that kind of statement in the New Testament. The basis on which the New Testament invites sinners to put faith in Christ is simply that they need him and he offers himself to them as Savior. And those who receive him are promised all the benefits that his death secured for, for his people. What is universal and all-inclusive in the New Testament is the invitation to faith and the promise of salvation for all who believe. And that's it. You present the gospel that Christ came to put away sin. He died 
for sin so that sins could be forgiven, taken away. And the only the only ground for that to happen is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, what, what we said previously about sin and about the law and about God, all of that comes into play. The gospel is not believe that Christ died for everybody's sins and therefore yours any more than it is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who died only for certain people's sins and perhaps not yours. <laughs> you wouldn't say that. <laughs> the gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sins and now offers himself as your Savior. We have no business to ask them to put their faith in any view of the extent of the atonement. Now, we do believe that Christ died for the elect. We, I mean, we, we believe that. We believe that's what Bible, the Bible teaches. But it doesn't have to come, that, that doesn't enter into the gospel message. In fact, it's because that both John Wesley and George Whitfield grasped that idea that they, were, that they could see themselves as brothers in evangelism, though they differed in their view of the atonement. We're not going to finish this sheet this morning, so bring it back with you next week. We come to the uh, fourth ingredient of the gospel. We said there are four essential points to the gospel message. <clears throat> the first is, the message is about God. Secondly, it's about sin. Thirdly, it's about Christ. And fourth, the gospel is a summons to repentance, to faith and repentance. Or repentance and faith. All who hear the gospel are summoned by God to repent and believe. In Acts 17.30, Paul says this to the Athenians. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Repentance is actually a command of God. When asked by his hearers what they should do in order to work the works of God, Jesus replied, This is the work of God that you believe on him who has sent. So, there were no other works will save you. The work that God requires is to believe on Him who He has sent. And in 1 John 3.23 we read, this is, the, this is His command, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. So both repentance and faith are commands of God. He commands us to repent and believe. Therefore, unbelief and impenitence are serious sins. In Luke 13, Jesus was uh, asked about the uh, blood of the Galileans who were 
who, who, who were killed in their blood, you know, used the sacrifices. And then another one about the Tyre of Siloam who fell on some people and killed them. And Jesus said, do you think those people were worse sinners than anybody else? He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's interesting how, uh, it's how human nature it is that we, we uh, want to change the subject to somebody else. Well, what about this guy? He's, I'm not as bad as he is. You know, kind of thing. So, you, know, you still fall short, right? You're still under the wrath of God. What about you? you know, don't worry about that guy. And, that, and that's, that's what Jesus is talking about here. You look, unless you repent you will likewise perish. In 10, Acts 10.43, we read, Through his name, whoever believes in him shall receive remission of sins. In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, it needs to be said that faith is not just an optimistic feeling any more than repentance is just being regretful or remorseful uh, over something you've done. Faith and repentance are both acts and acts of the whole person. And faith is more than just credence. Faith is essentially a casting and, and resting ourselves upon relying, basically totally relying upon Christ and His finished work on the cross. It's like a it's like a pond with ice on it, and uh, you tell your friend, "Go ahead, walk out there," you, or you know, you think it'll hold you? Yeah, I think it'll hold me. Okay, walk out there. Well, I don't know. If I... <laughs> you see, it's 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 more than a mental thing. It's like it's you have to actually rely on it by stepping out on it. That's what saving faith is. It's total reliance upon, upon God. Repentance also is more than just sorrow for the past. Repentance is a change of mind and heart. It's actually to turn, to turn away from sin and go in the other direction to God. It's denying self and serving the Savior's King in self's place. So mere uh, profession of faith without actually trusting, without actually walking out on the ice, or remorse without actually turning doesn't save a person. It takes both the total reliance and the turn in turn to God. You know, James says the demons also believe and tremble. But of course they're not saved. The sorrow of the world produces death, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10. It's not true repentance. Just a couple other points about this. Um, The demand is for faith as well as repentance. Both. It's not enough just to to resolve to turn from sin and give up evil habits and try to put Christ's teaching into practice by being religious and doing all kinds of good works. 
Uh, you know, people have tried that. It's sort of like a New, New Year's resolution. Okay, I, you know, I'm going to do better this year. I'm going to, I'm going to make a real change in my life and change my diet and get more exercise and do all that. Um, well, first of all, most of the time people fail at that. <laughs> but, but secondly, um, that in itself is not is not is not going to save save you. People try to do that. In fact, Martin Luther tried to do that. That's what that was. That was his deal. He he turned. He was he was going to be change his life. Resolutions and morality and religiosity are not substitutes for faith. In fact, Martin Luther and John Wesley both had those moral resolutions before they came to faith in Christ. There is to be faith, however, there must be a foundation of knowledge. A person must know of Christ and his cross and his promises. And we, we dealt with that er, earlier, a few weeks ago, on talking about that the message must be taught. There are things that people need to know, information. They must know about who Christ is and his work. In our presentation of the gospel, we need to stress these things in order to lead sinners to abandon, and this is important, to abandon all confidence in themselves. As long as people feel like there's something they can do to get right with God, they're on the wrong track. But rather to trust completely in Christ and the power of His redeeming blood to give them acceptance with God. Nothing less than this is faith. And, you know, we talk about those things... In membership vows, we ask the questions. Second, the demand is for repentance as well as faith. The opposite side of that. It's not enough to believe only through Christ and his death that, that sinners are justified and accepted And that one's record of sin is sufficient to bring down Christ's condemning sentences 20 times over. That apart from Christ, one has no hope. The knowledge of the gospel and orthodox belief in it is no substitute for repentance. And again, um, there needs to be some knowledge before a person can do that. A person must know that in the, in the first words of Luther's 95 Thesis, he says this, When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So faith without repentance is not saving either. A person must know where repentance involves. More than once, Christ deliberately called attention to the radical break with the past that repentance involves. He says in Luke 9, 23 and following, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. And in chapter 14, 
He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, Christ didn't desire to make disciples under false pretenses. In fact, he made it difficult for people to follow him. In our own presentation of the gospel, then we need to we need to lay a similar stress on the cost of following Christ. And oftentimes, I think this is where evangelism falls down when we think about evangelism broadly across, uh, particularly big events like like uh, crusades or revivals, those kind of things. Is that the gospels tend to to Make it as easy as possible for a person to say yes to Christ. You know, and that's not the gospel. That's it's, it's a false pretense. In honesty, we must not conceal the fact that free forgiveness, in one sense, will cost everything. We're, we're, we're serving a new master, no longer ourselves. At least we think it's ourselves. It's really the enemy that we're serving. But we think it's ourselves. We're serving a new master now. And that, that's a, there's a cost involved. And people need to see that up front. What this requires. It's a complete change of life. For them. Otherwise, evangelism just becomes a confidence trick, basically. You know, there was a big church in Chicago back when I was uh, in seminary called Willow Creek Community Church. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Uh, They had what they call seeker-sensitive services. And it was uh, basically where they present the gospel. That was their Sunday morning service, the seeker-sensitive service. And it was to get people to, to make a decision for Christ. On Wednesday nights, they had what they call new community and that was for believers and that's where that's when people who came to Christ in the first service started coming to the sorry coming to that and then they felt like whoa wait a minute I didn't sign up for this <laughs> I mean this is they started hearing about what it means to be a follower of Christ and that wasn't you know talked about beforehand and so it, it caused some problem you know you, they, you lost a lot of people right off the bat um, we need to make it clear what what Christ requires of us, what what the gospel really is. Where there's no realistic recognition of the real claims of Christ, that Christ makes, there's no there really can be no repentance and therefore no salvation. Okay, I think we'll stop there and we'll start it. Number three, next week, what's the motive for evangelism, for evangelizing? Um, Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the good news. It is good news, Lord. We know that uh, good news is only good in relationship to bad news. And oftentimes, Father, we we, uh, don't want to tell people bad news. But we know it's necessary for true faith and repentance. 
Help us, Father, to be wise in our sharing the gospel. Uh, to not force people into a decision. To, to simply speak to them in love, but also in truth. That we would honor you, Father, with your truth. We pray, Lord, now for our our worship service. We pray uh, that we might sense your presence as we gather together to worship, Lord. We lift up our praise and and worship to you. That we hear your voice speak through Pastor Paul this morning. As he opens your word to us, that we might hear it and understand it, apply it to our lives. That you might be glorified in Christ we ask. Amen.